I'm ready to talk to you one-on-one -on -one about working together. If you think back, many of the successful multifamily investors I've interviewed here on this show, their first step into this space was becoming a passive equity partner. One of the many benefits is the opportunity to build a track record that allows you to have more credibility with sellers, brokers, and your own passive investors. My company has about 700 doors that we're actively working on right now. And when these go to contract, we bring these opportunities to the accredited investors that are on our list. If you've already been thinking about getting a portfolio of multifamily doors, then now is a great opportunity for you to be involved with Blue Spruce Holdings as a passive equity partner. One of the unique things that my team does for our equity partners is sending out invites when we tour a new property, which allows them to see what we look for, along with getting to know the building and the neighborhood and even meeting some of the residents. So if you're ready to take the next step and set up a one-on-one -on -one call with me, then please find my calendar link in today's show notes and let's talk. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. The annual Raising Money Summit is coming up. This event is going to be the most valuable event you will attend. We have a top securities attorney covering all the legalities of raising money. We have an active syndicator covering the information needed in a sample deal package. We'll also be teaching the systems and processes of managing your investors. And we'll share the psychology behind the salesmanship for effectively attracting private capital. This event is the weekend of November 17th and 18th, and I know it'll sell out, so don't wait. We sold over 100 tickets in just the first 24 hours. Book your tickets now to the annual Raising Money Summit, which is in Denver. Find the details of the event in the show notes. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Adam, your coach and mentor when it comes to all things out-of-box real estate. What we have today is Tim Bratz. Tim Bratz, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me here, Adam. Excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Just a few quick things about Tim Bratz. Right now, today, as we record this, he owns more than 1,300 doors, and he's pretty close to owning 1,700 doors because uh, those are about to close. So by the time it comes out, you're, you're going to be at 2,000, Tim. He owns in Ohio, South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and even Florida, all sorts of different types of real estate. So he's done uh, little rentals. He's done fix and flips. He's done uh, large multifamily. So we have a lot of information that we're going to go through today. He's borrowed from Roths. He's lent, uh, he's paid for real estate with his IRA. Um, he's been in this business for a long, long time, but do you want to know what the biggest takeaway you're going to get today? It is how he raised almost $4 million in one weekend. It's nuts. So I'm excited to get into that. And then when we go to your most creative deal, uh, Tim, it's going to be nuts because you're utilizing so many strategies when you get into that. So for the listeners, I think we're going to get a lot of great takeaways. Maybe one of the biggest ones is how you can raise money fast. So here we go. Tim, did I miss anything that you want to share with the listeners? <laughs> you, got, you got everything, man. I, I started out doing the residential game, just like a lot of other real estate investors. Um, you know, got involved in real estate thinking that uh, there's this allure of passive income, residual income, doing something one time and getting paid on it over and over and over again, and really creating that long-term wealth. And then, you know, I think like a lot of real estate investors, they get tied up into thinking that, 
they need to be sitting on a stockpile of cash in order to get involved in those types of assets. And so I got involved in the transactional game of flipping houses. I was doing turnkey flips, residential retail, high-end retail flips, low-end retail flips, uh, brokering, wholesaling, doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, about 12, eh, 24 months ago, I realized, you know, I'm, I'm turning my, spinning my wheels and I'm just on the, in this rat race that I was trying to get out of in the first place. And I look back at, you know, where the majority of my net worth was created and where I was spending my time. And 90% of my net worth was in my apartment buildings and it took up about 10% of my time. So I decided, Hey, let me, what, let me dedicate all those resources over to apartment buildings and picked up uh, about a thousand units, almost a thousand units in the past uh, 18 months or so. Wow, that's a that's quite a bit. So, I've got a few questions. So, we you mentioned something like originally you think a lot of investors think that they need to sit on a stockpile of cash before they get involved. So, I want you to kind of dive into that and tell us do they need to sit on a stockpile of cash and why? You know, knowledge is power. And so, uh, I always thought that I had to use my own money for deals and, you know, got involved in the private money and borrowing private capital for opportunities. Um, and then, and then learned a little bit about the types of non-recourse financing that was available in the commercial world and how I could pair that with private money in order to not have to bring any of my own capital to the table, not only not have to bring any of my own capital to the table, but actually walk away from the closing table on the acquisition side with money in my pocket. So, um, you know, I just, listen to podcasts, going out to um, talking to people who've already done it and just kind of creatively structuring um, deals with my power team, my attorney, my, my commercial mortgage broker, and um, my private lenders to uh, obtain traditional financing for majority of the purchase price, 80%, and then bringing in private money for the other balance, uh, plus some operating expenses and maybe to put uh, an acquisition fee in my pocket too. And that acquisition fee pays me keeps the food on the table while the, uh, you know, the stabilization process is happening while we're putting the value add into the properties. And, um, and then eventually the property gets to be a performing asset, pays for itself. And then I'm able to turn around refinance on the back end. You know, we, we look for pretty heavy value adds and that allows us to force so much appreciation that creates a large spread of equity in the deal. So usually 12, 24 months out, we can uh, turn around and refinance into non-recourse loans. And then it allows us to pay back all of our private lenders, pay back our short-term construction financing. And uh, now we don't have any money in the deal. And sometimes we're able to pull a bunch of money out from those refinance proceeds as well, 12, 24 months down the road. That's all really, really great. I've got so many questions lined up. It's nuts. Tim, you've done, you've done a little bit of everything, haven't you? Yep. Done it's everything, great. man. I love it. All right. So first off, you said something we're going to have to go in a few of the, of the uh, terminology that you used because sure. a lot of my listeners have been with me for a long time and they know all this terminology and a lot of the listeners are brand new today. This is the first episode they ever heard. So we want to be, make sure that they're, everybody's following us. So first off, what is a heavy value add? <laughs> heavy value add um, is a significant renovation. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're putting, 25%, 30%, 40%, 50% of the cost of the project of the overall cost is going into just the renovation. I think that's a pretty heavy value add. A lot of people are looking at stabilized assets right now at five caps and 6% cap rates. And cap rate is just a return on investment. Cap rate is just the, the real estate terminology for that. And um, you know, I, I don't like buying stabilized. I mean, we're real estate investors, so we're always looking for a good deal, right? If you're buying something at a retail price, there's no room to create equity to force that 
uh, that value add, put that sweat equity into the deal. So I'm always looking for properties that are distressed, whether that's from a managerial standpoint or from a physical standpoint where, uh, you know, it's got old windows, old electric, old plumbing, old roof, um, you know, just dated finishes and um, that's on the property itself or it's a maybe an older uh, mom and pop real estate investor who've owned this thing for 20, 30, 40 years. They just don't want to put the money into it. They're self-managing it or it's an out-of-state owner who's not paying attention to it. They're busy with their primary business and um, for whatever reason, the management has kind of fallen off to the wayside too. So we're looking for, for both of those types of value adds and by uh, putting good management in place and really improving the property to attract the best tenants and harden the property. Um, meaning we don't, we don't do things like carpet. We put in hardwood floors in all of our units cause it's easier to turn. They're easier to clean. They don't get bugs caught in them. So we do a lot of stuff like that um, to harden the property and, and decrease the maintenance, the long-term maintenance that we have. And, um, and then just putting good management in place and, and paying attention to it. You know, it's something that, uh, the numbers don't lie. And when you get management reports and reviewing those on a monthly basis, you know, what the, uh, what the temperature of the asset is. Awesome. So when you're doing a heavy value add versus a stabilized project, how are these single families? Are these hundred units? Are these 200 units? What, what are you really looking at here? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I've done everything I used to do. I've, I've done probably 200, almost 300 turnkey single family flips over the past three, four years, about 12 months ago, I cut that out and I'm not, I'm only buying apartment buildings now. So in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where my base is, I'll buy anything that's essentially about 10 units or bigger, as long as it's an A or B class area. And, um, out of state, it typically needs to be about $2 million or larger, uh, just, you know, validates the time to travel out there and, and spend time on that and bring some, bring in a partner that could be a joint venture boots on the ground kind of person. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't buy anything that's retail priced. Again, we're investors. We're looking for wholesale type of deals. I remember my first investment seminar that I ever went to the guru up on stage said, always buy wholesale. You know, if you're not embarrassed by the offer you're making, you're offering too much. That's actually what he said, which I don't totally subscribe to, but, um, especially in a hot economy, it's hard to find deals if you're, if you're insulting sellers, but, um, you know, you, you can't be, you can't be paying retail. If you're paying retail price for a property today and you're buying something at a 6% cap rate, I mean, what happens when interest rates go up one point over the next couple of years, mm-hmm. and five years, seven years down the road, it's time for you to refinance and interest rates are higher than what the cap rate is that you bought it at. And what happens is that uh, now you can't refinance the property. Now you can't sell the property because they're not trading for uh, that price point. So you really need to be careful on making sure that you are buying at a, at a certain basis, a low enough purchase price, and then forcing that appreciation uh, yourself. All right. And so forced appreciation was one of my next questions. That is the part of the value add. Is that accurate? You're raising rents, you're lowering expenses, and that's yep. what's making the building cost more. So let me ask you a quick question. If you bought that $2 million project that you said was your minimum price outside of your own state, how much would you end up probably selling it for? And, and how long would it take you to sell that in general? So going back to my original comment when we first got introduced of, I got into real estate for long-term passive holds. I see a lot of syndicators or commercial real estate guys getting involved in uh, commercial real estate to buy an asset, force the appreciation, fix it all up, stabilize it, and then sell it three, five, seven years down the road. To me, that doesn't make sense. That, then you just have another high paying job. You got to turn around, do it again, do it again, do it again in order to keep on getting paid 
on those deals. I want to hold all my assets long-term. So I do over-the-top renovations. I don't look for over-the-top um, rents, but I just want over-the-top renovations so that this is a good asset for the next 20 years. I have very predictable maintenance expenses and ongoing operational costs uh, because my plan is to refinance in a couple years, put that longer-term debt, like a 10-year loan term um, on it, and then 10 years from now, Again, we did all the windows, we did all the roofs, we did the parking lot and the electric and hardened the property to a point where um, it's real simple. We can turn a unit in a day or two. All and right, so, so you, oh, go, go ahead, sorry. No, go I was, was going to, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so our idea is 10 years down the road, we could just turn around and refinance a property. If a couple of bucks need to go back in, we can do that again. But the idea is refinance, pull a bunch more money off the table and then, and then hold it for another five to seven years. And then maybe before all those like 20 year big expenses, the mechanicals and the roof and the windows and the parking lot all come due again. Maybe we sell it in year 15, year 17 that we owned it and then roll it into a 1031 exchange into something bigger, better area, whatever that looks like. Perfect. My question is you're opening my mind to a new way of thinking about multifamily because you and I both, uh, go to the same, some of the same meetings. We know a lot of the same people. And I, I think we both hear most of the other people talking about what you said, flipping it in two, three, four, five, six, seven years. But your idea is unique. You're trying to keep these for 20 years. You're always thinking about the long term. But you all are also raising money. So in my uh, you know, humble thought, I would have thought that it was difficult for you to raise money. Obviously that is not true, but I would have thought that if you were wanting to raise OPM so that you can close on these deals and hold them for 20 years, that you would be swimming upstream since a lot of other investors are trying to get their money back in three, four, five years. So let me just ask you, with that said, how are you raising money? What are you telling the investors? Are you raising debt? Are you raising equity? Is it Metzine debt or what is, what is your strategy and how are you doing it to pay your investors? Yeah, so it all goes back to buying value-add properties. Um, essentially, just like on the single family realm, you know, most single family flippers have a certain um, equation that they have to meet. And they say, hey, I have to be all into the property for 65 cents on the dollar. You know, purchase price renovation can't exceed, you know, more than 65 or 70 cents of what I'm going to resell the property for. I've just brought that exact same model over to apartment buildings. But instead of using the resale price, uh, I'm using the appraisal price. So I know it's very predictable what a property will appraise for because it's 100% the income approach. We're not looking at comps down the street and bedrooms and bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. You're looking at how much does a property bring in? What are the expenses on that property? What's the net operating income? And then a multiple of that is what the property will appraise for. So it's very predictable on the front end before you even do these uh, acquisitions to know what it's going to be worth on the, on the back end. So when I go in, I essentially need to be all in for about 75%, maybe up to 80% of what the after repair value, the stabilized value of that apartment building will be. That allows me to then go to Fred, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, SBA loans, whatever, and get a non-recourse loan at 80% loan to value to cash out my short-term debt and all my investors. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does make sense. So when you say cash them out, that means they're no longer in the deal? 
I give them all their money back. I pay a fixed. So I'm, I'm, I'm different than traditional syndicators. Traditional syndicators will say, Hey, listen, you get paid if the property's performing. Uh, you don't get paid if the property's not performing, but whenever we sell the property five years down the road, that's when, you know, you're getting your pref. It all gets paid out. I found that investors want to get paid day one. Um, they want to know exactly how much money they're going to be making on their money. And they like to see that hitting their bank account every single month. So I've created sort of a hybrid of paying a debt, uh, paying a fixed rate of return while the money's in play. And then I only buy deals where I can be all in for essentially 75 cents on the dollar. So if I can be all in for 75 cents on the dollar, that allows me to stabilize the property and refinance it in 12 to 24 months and get all my investors their money back. And then once they get their money back, I give them a smaller piece of equity on the back end. They have nothing invested any longer, but they still get a piece of the equity long-term. So they get a, if there's any refi proceeds, they get a percentage of that. If there's any cash flow, they get a percentage of that. And then down the road, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, whenever we go to sell, they'll get a percentage of the sales proceeds as well. Very cool stuff, Tim. I wish we could spend a lot more time. I want to pick <laughs> your brain about this because uh, this might be the Holy Grail. It is. Right. So <laughs> It is, he says. All right. So... I have one thing that I wanted to bring up and mention, and then actually two. Uh, so number one, I want to talk about the turnkey rentals that you've done and how you sold those, because I think it's very, very interesting. Then I want to get into the biggest deal you've ever done and how you closed it, and then we'll get into the final five. Does that work for you? Let's do it, bud. Okay, turnkey rentals, what is the creative strategy that you sold these with? So uh, on the turnkey side, I didn't like, there's a lot of companies out there that um, have turnkey buyers that you can partner up with. They take a pretty sizable commission um, and it kind of really, it really eats into that because in turnkey business, you need to be in that lower B, maybe C plus kind of areas. And usually they're 50 to a hundred thousand dollar houses. So if you're paying somebody seven, eight grand, that's a big chunk of, uh, of your profit on that. Um, so what I realized is I need to be direct to the buyer and I need to be direct to the seller. So again, we found off-market deals, we're direct to the seller, negotiated, moved pretty quick, closed with cash. And, um, and then we, we would post, this is, this is how I built my entire buyer's list. I'd post either deals I was doing or phantom ads of deals that I've done or deals that I wanted to do, that kind of um, properties that would attract the buyers that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And I'd post it in, um, in Cleveland, which is where we were doing deals. And then I'd also post it in big cities like New York and DC and California and Dallas, Fort Worth and Miami, where you can't find houses for 50, 75, $100,000. Um, and that'll yield an eight, nine, 10, 12% cap rate. So I posted in all those different areas. And then naturally people are like, damn, this is an awesome deal. I, let me at least just reach out to this kid. And then they reached out to me. We'd add them to our buyers list. And, and naturally, you know, we had thousands of people that would inquire. We were posting these things on a daily and weekly basis. And we created this massive buyers list. And, um, you know, most of the people are tire kickers. Not many of them were actually buyers or did, we did deals with. But all you need is a handful of people. And so we sold 300 properties probably to, I don't know, less than 10 groups of people over the course of 36 months. And, um, and that's what we did. And now you got social media, there's groups for turnkey buyers that you can go into and post an ad of a deal that you're doing or, or a sample deal that you would promote and uh, say, Hey, who's interested in this? And people's emails, like, like they're all over, you know, you can go and build a buyer's list of several hundred active buyers or at least wholesalers who know buyers that, uh, um, 
it in a matter of a couple of days. So that's how we, we did it. And there were people, groups from like Israel, Australia, Canada, who saw our listings on Craigslist and, um, and other places on social media. And they inquired and we ended up partnering up with a few groups and uh, moved all of our product to them. You know, got, got involved, knew exactly what their business model was, make sure that we were providing them exactly what they were looking for. And it worked that's, out. That's very, very smart. Uh, the way that you found your buyers with like Craigslist is amazing. And Dude, it's guerrilla marketing. You know, absolutely. everybody wants a shortcut. Everybody wants the easy, let me just pay for a list. That's not how it works. You know, we want organic leads, organic traffic coming in. And if you build that, it's, it's even more valuable. All right. And so on those turnkeys, let's just talk about the mortgage wraps on how you sold them. Go over that a little bit uh, in more in depth. So on, on some of them, we would buy it, put financing in place, and then we'd turn around and sell or finance it to the back end buyer. Um, that wasn't our typical model. We were, we were typically looking for cash buyers that could just, you know, we could be in and out of these properties pretty quickly. Uh, but on several of them, I know we've, we've talked offline on this. Um, I bought a portfolio of about 10 houses, um, stabilized them, had them as my own rentals for about two years, and then um, put long-term financing in place. And what happened is I was moving out of state. I decided I wanted to sell them and get rid of them, but I couldn't get my price point. This is back in like 2012, 2013. And so what I did is I, I turned around and I did a wraparound mortgage. So in South Carolina, which is where I was living at the time, it's called an installment contract for deed. So it's like a car loan where you, um, somebody's buying the car from you, but they don't get the deed. They don't get the, the um, title of the property until they pay you off in full. So the, technically I still own the assets. I still control the assets. They're hundred percent responsible for them though. And the operational side. So they make a payment to me. I got exactly what the price was that I wanted. They gave me a down payment and then they make payments to me every single month. And then I, I make a spread between the payment that they make to me and the payment I make to my bank. And I, I'm completely passive in those. It's been uh, shoot five, six years since I sold the six years since I sold those and um, I'm getting checks every single month. I make a spread on it and uh, I got a bunch, a big chunk on the front end. And then when they refinance, which I'll actually be later on this year, I'm going to get a big chunk on the back end. That's all fantastic. And one of the things that we kind of talked about also offline is when you're doing the installment contract for deed, you don't really pay taxes the same way. You don't have this one time where you, where you make 100K and all of a sudden you have to pay 40 of it. You slowly make 10K and maybe pay a couple thousand, but that way you're able to kind of go and go and go over time. It's kind of interesting and it would be a great strategy too if you were to want to purchase something in, in this fashion to offer to somebody who might be a little bit older uh, landlord who doesn't want to pay those giant taxes and just kind of wants the cash flow. Yeah, they're liquid in the portfolio. Uh, it's all about figuring out what motivates people. And so especially like you were saying, people who have been landlords for a long time, they like the residual income. They like the passive income. They like the knowing that if they have $20,000 coming in their bank account on July 1st, they can spend it all. And there's going to be another $20,000 coming in their bank account on August 1st. And they like that. So it's a little bit intimidating for older folks, especially who have been in this game a long time to sell all their property, think they're going to get hit with a big tax windfall, which they will, you know, I mean, I'm sure their cost basis is ne next to nothing and they're going to pay 20% capital gains on all that stuff. So this is a way where they don't get hit with a huge tax bill um, on the front end. 
and then they can still maintain, say, hey, listen, instead of you selling and uh, me having to come to the table with a bunch of money, you getting hit with a big tax bill, you know, why don't you sell or finance it to me? And this is like your retirement. This is like an annuity that's going to pay you, you know, for the rest of your life and, um, uh, and, and structure it that way. And that it, it's worked. I've done that before. Love it. Thanks for going over all those details. So, so let's talk about your very biggest deal that you've ever closed. Um, how many doors was that and how much did it cost? Yeah. So I just closed a portfolio loan, five apartment buildings in Georgia, just South of Atlanta. It was 730 doors and uh, essentially doubled my portfolio overnight. And it was, um, so, so this is going back to finding out why the seller's motivated. So this property was listed with a broker. I, I rarely buy properties that are listed with brokers um, unless they usually come on back on the market. And then I know that like what the seller's motivation is, but you got to know what the seller's motivation is. Um, so usually I'm direct to the seller and finding off market deals, but this one was, was in contract for over six months. The owners are some guys out of New York, big stock brokers. Um, I buy most of my properties from people who own the property for a long time and they're self-managing or from entrepreneurs and, and high net worth individuals who thought they could get into real estate and then got kicked in the teeth so many times because they don't realize what the, the learning curve is um, in this. So this is what happened to these guys. They're, they're New York stock brokers, making a bunch of money, bought a bunch of apartment buildings down in Georgia, thinking that you know, they, it's just going to set it and forget it kind of a thing. Not always the case because they didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't know what the right questions to ask. So they put it with the management company that just completely dropped the ball. And these properties were 50% occupied. So 50% occupied properties are very hard to finance. Not a lot of, of uh, uh, companies. You can't get Freddie Mac, can't get Fannie Mae type financing on that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> it was under contract with the buyer and they couldn't get it financed. For six months, these sellers were dragged through the mud. So when it came back on the market, um, it was, you know, obviously a bidding war. It's a hot market. This just happened a few months ago. And uh, we got involved, but we knew what the seller's motivation was. So we went in and made an offer on 730 units at 50% occupancy at $9.6 million. We're buying it for like 15,000 a unit, even less. But what we did, and we were millions of dollars shy of what the, what the highest offer was. But what we did is we put $200,000 of hard earnest money up from day one. And, and what that did is it gave us so much posture with the seller because what the seller didn't want was to get dragged through the mud again with somebody who's not going to be able to close. And all they wanted was this thing off their, off their conscience, off their books. And so when we came in and made a hard earnest money and postured up and said, listen, we're going to close this deal. And here's how confident we are in our ability to close the deal. They were willing to take a haircut of millions of dollars in order to um, know that their problem was going to be solved. So they contracted with us. I have a good buddy of mine who I've done millions of dollars of transactions with, excuse me, over the past 12 months. And I made a phone call to him. And um, again, this is a heavy value add. So although we bought it for 9.6, we were putting another $10.5 million into the property. Holy and then cow. I saw... Yeah. And then our soft costs and holding costs were another like 4 million bucks. So it's a $24 million deal. We got a debt fund, um, out of, uh, the Pacific Northwest, I think to, uh, to fund this whole thing. They loved our cost basis so much because the after repair value, the stabilized value is going to be somewhere in the low $40 million range, probably 42, $43 million. So they're going to be all in, uh, and we need to bring 4 million bucks to the table of private capital. So my, my good buddy, I've done millions of dollars of deals with them. He said that we were good to go. Unfortunately, 
And so I've been sitting on my hands for like three months waiting for this deal to close. And uh, a week before the deal closes, he calls me up and said he was going to fund it with another transaction of his that didn't go through and he didn't have any of the $4 million. So he told me that on a Friday morning and by we were closing on Monday. And so I had to uh, roll up my sleeves and get, get dirty a little bit. Um, and just, just grinded it out. So I did a couple of things. I, I, first of all, I, I realized that people are going to have a lot of questions. I couldn't spend a lot of time answering questions. So I put just a detailed one page overview together, super simple, super easy to understand and with an attachment of a Dropbox folder with all due diligence that they could ever ask for. So I put that together. I made a list of everybody I've ever done a deal with. Everybody I know who's ever been a, a landlord sold property from me, uh, sold property to me, bought property from me, uh, ever loaned me money before. Because in this realm, uh, owners of a commercial real estate are always buyers, they're always sellers, they're always private lenders. It just depends on the timing on which one that they are. So I made a list of, I don't know, probably like 200 people. And I just got on the phone and I started banging out phone calls. I made phone calls, I sent out text messages, I sent out emails, I reached out to so many people. <clears throat> and... Um, it probably slept four hours out of 48 hours. Uh, worked all day Friday into the middle of the night. Woke up early on Saturday morning. Kept on working all day Saturday, answering phone calls, putting paperwork together. And by, by Sunday night, I was able to have, <clears throat> excuse me, I was able to line up $4 million of private capital from six different people that brought between 200000 up to $1.5 million. That is fantastic. I love that. And one of the biggest takeaways from that well, there's two. And the main one is that, you know, it's persistence, determination, being relentless, never quitting, not letting, you know, something get you down, just saying instead of, uh, oh, crap, you know, I lost it. You instead said, how can I do this? How can I find a way? And you did find a way and it took you, you know, four hours of sleep on 48 hours, but you made the calls and raised $4 million calling, talking to 200 people. And, and it happened. And, you know, I would say that 99% of the people out there would lose when they did that. So it's fantastic that you were able to do that. So, so I have one question. Where did you get the original 200K? What do you mean? For which? You had to put down 200,000 oh. non-refundable yep. earnest money, a hard earnest money deposit. Where did that come from? Private lender. Okay, awesome. How did you originally reach out to that private lender that they would be willing to do your earnest money deposits? How would that conversation go? Same, same way I do all my deals. I, I raise money under the exact same terms. I gave them a fixed rate of return plus a little bit of back-end equity. And I just told them I needed the money now you know, to start the due diligence process and, and contract the property. And I told them, you know, I gave them the, the high-level overview of how awesome the prop project was and they wanted to be involved. You know, there's so much equity in this deal like on, when we go to refinance, we'll get at least a 75% loan on it. Um, if it appraises for 40 million, which is a low end, we'll take out $30 million on the refi proceeds in 24 months. And on that, um, you know, our cost basis is around 24, maybe just shy, uh, maybe a little 24 and a half million dollars. So we'll be able to pull out about five, five and a half million dollars tax-free when we go to refinance 24 months from now. Great. All right. They so wanted I, a piece of the deal. Yeah. So I have I got them in early. I have one question that I think is going to be a big question for a lot of the listeners. What would have happened, in your opinion, 
if you were unable to close this, if it did not close, what would have happened with that 200K? Would have lost it. So a couple things. I looked at my options. When, when he told me on Friday morning that he couldn't bring $4 million to the table, you, you know, your first thought is, oh shit, what am I going to do? You know? Um, and then you start looking at your options. You know, when I, when I, uh, one of the things that has made me more resourceful in life, you know, people say, hey, I can't get involved in real estate. I can't get involved in commercial real estate. I can't get involved in apartments because I don't have the time. You know, I don't have the money, Adam. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the resources. And I heard Tony Robbins say once, resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. And being able to troubleshoot and problem solve and think critically is, I think, one of the best skill sets, one of the most important skill sets to be successful in life. If you take a look at any CEO, any um, political influencer in the world, the reason they get paid the big bucks and the reason they have the power that they have is because they're problem solvers. So, um, you know, thinking critically is a big deal. And uh, I learned kind of through some internships and, and uh, early on when I was in college that when I, whenever I'm presented with a problem, I look at three different ways. Uh, I figure out three different ways to resolve that problem, three different options. And I take a look at those options. I weigh the costs and benefits of each one. And I go with the one that, that is the best um, at that time given the information. And I teach my team to do the exact same thing. That's how I empower them to go out and make decisions on their own. So in this, in this scenario, I looked at my options. I was like, Hey, option number one is I walk away from the deal. I lose $200,000 because my, my investor is not going to lose that money. That's going to come out of Tim Bratz's account. I got to pay him back either on the next deal or figure something out, um, pony up and, uh, and cover that. Um, because that's, you know, I would never have my investor risk that money. That's, that's based on me and my inability to close. Number two, was, uh, but, uh, but most importantly out of that, not only do I lose $200,000, but I lose face. The reason I was, I was able, was able to contract that deal is because I told the broker and I told the seller that we would close on this transaction. Do you think that broker would ever send me another deal if I didn't close on that transaction? No way. Absolutely not. So uh, reputation in this business, I mean, you know, we're on different sides of the country and we have a pretty good working relationship. We know each other pretty well through social media. We run into each other at different events. That's the, how small this world is. Like that's how small the real estate commercial investment world is. So if you burn somebody, if you don't perform on a, on a deal that you say you're going to perform on, word gets around and you're not going to get opportunities um, long-term on that. So, so not only would I lose the money, I'd lose my lose, lose face on that deal. So number two was, you know, could I ask for an extension? I probably could have asked for an extension, but again, it, it, I lose face with my, the debt fund that was funding the $20 million of the transaction. I lose face with the broker and then it just, it muddies the water a little bit and, and puts a sour taste in everybody's mouth. And then number three is I could just roll up my sleeves and get to work. And so that's what I did. And I figured out what was the best way, um, to, to act on this and to make a lot of phone calls and you just got to put in the work. A lot of people aren't willing to put in the work. They want the easy street. You know, we're in a society of, uh, uh, instant rice and instant pudding and instant success and fast food and, and, you know, easiness. And it, that's not the reality of it. You got to put in the work and you got to do the, do the work. You got to put in the reps, you know, you don't, um, get fit without actually going and putting in the reps. You got to lift the weights. You got to sweat. You got to bleed. You got, it's going to be painful. Your muscles are going to hurt, but you got to go through it. You got to go through it for a long time until you actually see the results, you know, 
Oh, yeah. even you don't see results after 30 days of working out every single day. You know, maybe you start seeing results personally, 60, 90 days down the road. It's not really until 120, 180 days down the road that other people are like, Adam, you've been working out. You look a little bit more trim. You know, you're like, what? I've been working out for the past, you know, six months, every single day. And you're just noticing now, but that's success doing those incremental things, the slight edge, you know, the compound effect, doing those things every single day, day in and day out. It's not, you know, eat a bushel of apples once a month. It's eating an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Absolutely. And Tim, we are out of time for this episode. We've learned a crazy amount of awesome information from you. Honestly, the mindset that has taken you from where you started and where, what you've done so far and your next properties that are coming up, the value, the way you're doing this, the out-of-box thinking, the relentlessism, everything that we've learned today has been really, really good. I'm going to bring you back. If you're willing to come back on, we will go over that creative deal that I kind of tease the listeners with. If you're willing to come back, we'll go over your book, your five years, where you were, where you're going to be. Uh, so first off, would you be willing to come back on since we kind of ran out of time today? Of course, man. Of course. All right. Awesome. And with that said, Tim, thank you. Let's just let the audience know how do they find you? How do they get a hold of you? This was all really inspiring. They might want to invest with you. They want to, you know, pick your brain. How do they find you? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, social media is big for me. Um, Facebook, TL Bratz, B-R-A-T-Z. Um, on Facebook, you can find me on that. Link up with me. Shoot me a private message. Would love to connect with you um, by phone. Um, I also have, I, I do some trainings and stuff. So if you guys are interested in coming out and seeing like how I, how I structure deals, I'll introduce you to my entire team. You can go to commercialempire.com. And, um, and then just fill out the form and somebody from my team will reach out to you and get you details on, on the next event that I have going on. Um, and if you're interested in either, you know, buying, selling properties, a joint venturing on properties, I'm always looking for awesome operators that I can joint venture with on out of town deals. So if you have a great deal, I'm happy to sponsor it. Um, I can bring the financing, I can raise the money for it and kind of give you some insight and direction on how that goes. So you can go to my website, which is cleturnkey.com, clevelandturnkey.com and, um, and hit me up on there. So appreciate that, Adam. I appreciate having me here, man. I, I thank you for what you do for the real estate world. Oh, thank you so much. So let's go over this real fast. It's TL Bratz on Facebook. You can go to clturnkey.com if you want to JV or uh, let him sponsor a deal with you. And then go to commercialempire.com. All those links are going to be in the show notes. Again, thank you, Tim. And until next time, think outside the box. Thanks, brother. Creative investors, don't you agree that part of an amazing first impression to clients and fellow investors is having a truly creative visual presence? I can say from personal experience, Tannis at Immense Designs can create the product you need to leave a lasting impression. Tannis has done an astounding job with our logos, business cards, and podcast artwork. See for yourself. You can contact Tannis by visiting immensedesigns.us. Hey, it's DJ, and I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. We're glad you keep listening to each episode, and I want to ask you to please take a minute to give us a five-star review. And remember, we are not attorneys or CPAs. This is just the stuff you bring to your advisors.